0: This morning, our scripture reading comes from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, um, Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 20. The Apostle Paul writes, That, however, is not the way of life you learned, talking to the believers in Ephesus. It's not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Last week we looked at the very strong teaching of Jesus, saying that if we wanted to be true followers of him, we had to eat his body and drink his blood. He made that shocking statement, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. If we are truly going to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, he needs to become so much a part of our lives, a part of us, that we lose our old identity. Then we can say, along with the Apostle Paul, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And Jesus provided that opportunity, he provided that possibility at the cross after he had been ridiculed, falsely accused, beaten, mocked, and finally nailed to the cross. If anyone ever in the history of mankind had the right to be offended and had the right to be righteously indignant, it was Jesus. Jesus. But instead, he forgave. Father, forgive them. This morning I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about taking offense. I want to talk about righteous indignation. And I want to talk about forgiveness. You know, we live in the midst of an offended culture today. Everybody is taking offense in fact, it's the hallmark of the woke culture because everything has become about me. Interestingly, as I was researching, I came across a blog on a website called Atheistic Republic. And I looked at that, I thought, I'm not gonna look at that one. I thought, I don't know. I, let me see what uh, be interesting. And I found that even a godless person, okay, atheistic, godless person can see the truth about taking offense. Listen. He writes this, quote: Someone quite brilliant once said, "Offense can never be given, only taken." Before someone can offend me, I have to allow that person to do so. Without control, it causes an instantaneous effect on our emotions, which in turn causes us to react in an irrational manner. At the instant offense is taken, our judgment becomes clouded by our own emotional response to whatever it is that we feel has offended us. What most don't realize that taking offense is just another emotional reaction we can learn to control. According to the statement, he says, if offense can only ever be taken, then the offensiveness is our reaction to a statement or action, not a property of the statement or action itself. Every time you take offense, he says, it is simply because you have chosen to feel that way. The nasty feeling you have is a direct consequence of your choice, not the statement or action which motivated it, end quote. I thought that was fascinating. You see, taking offense becomes a very selfish action because it's all about me. It's about my feelings about something I don't agree with. I looked up taking offense in the dictionary. And it gives this as a definition. To feel and usually show resentment at another's actions or words. It's emotional to feel that. You see, emotionally we say, they've offended me. But that's actually very, a very dishonest statement. I, in my selfish ac- uh, anger, decided to take offense. And folks, as sin. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we read, And they took offense at him, speaking about Jesus. The setting of this verse of scripture is Jesus' ministry stop in his own hometown of Nazareth. And he received an unusual reaction from the people as he's going and preaching and teaching in his own hometown, they took offense. This one little phrase grabs our attention at a time when people are so easily offended with one another today. And it's one of of the most dangerous things that we can do in life. One author wrote, No doubt the fastest route to spiritual powerlessness, frustration, and barrenness is called taking offense. Let me share two truths about taking offense. Truth number one, taking offense has real consequences. Let me read you another quote, not from the Atheistic uh, Republic. Taking offense is perhaps the number one crippler of Christian believers, individually and corporately. It suddenly poisons the soul, perverts perspective, and deceives with its pride. It magnifies the perceived speck in your brother's or sister's eye and minimizes or, more frequently, blinds us to the log that's in our own eyes. It destroys friendships, ruins marriages, divides groups, and generally messes up anywhere and everywhere it shows up. Talking about consequences. Think, Think about the consequences of the citizens of Nazareth taking offense at Jesus. It says, He, talking about Jesus, he could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. Folks, this is Jesus himself, this is the Son of God. Notice what the verse does and doesn't say. It doesn't say that Jesus would not do any miracles there. It says that he could not do any miracles there. A severe limitation was placed on Jesus' fruitful ministry because of an offense carried by the people, the consequences of others taking offense. Think of all the people who missed the blessings of Jesus because they took offense. Really sad. The concept of taking offense is active. It's something we choose to do. We take it. For whatever reason, we decide to pick it up. We may pick it up on our own or participate in a shared offense of somebody else. We decide we're going to be offended for somebody or with somebody else. Either way, the offense becomes our possession, it becomes our weight and potentially our downfall. But there's another truth about taking offense that is actually encouraging. Truth number two, laying down offenses restores and reconnects. And the good news is that just as a person can take offense, they can lay it back down again. They can let it go. It's a choice. You don't have to keep what you take the laying down of our fences restores joy and reconnects us with spiritual strength and power. Taking offense just isn't worth it because it's so hard to let go because self and pride are so strongly intermingled and incorporated. Someone once said, certain things are important to take with you on the journey of life, but offenses are best left behind. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14, we read, "Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Folks, we can't live in peace with everyone or be holy if we are allowing our emotions to take control and take offense when 99 percent of the time offense is never given. He goes on to say in verse 15. There in Hebrews 12, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. How does a bitter root begin? So often it's because we've decided to take offense. And note that that bitter root can defile many. Oftentimes it affects the whole church body. When one person takes offense... Well, Pastor, what about righteous indignation? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's my next point. Righteous indignation, interesting term. Too many Christians use the phrase righteous indignation as an excuse to vent and act out their anger. Just because we are Christian does not mean our anger is righteous. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.26 that we, that we read, In your anger, do not sin. Now, anger in itself is not sin. God created the ability to be anger, angry. It's one of those emotions that, that we have. It's one, of the, uh, it's one that he's given to us. However, it's the motive behind our anger and what we do with that anger that becomes sin. One definition of righteous indignation, which I saw floating around on the web, was this one. Righteous indignation is typically a reactive emotion of anger over perceived mistreatment, insult, or malice. That's a horrible definition. That's a horrible definition. That's a definition of taking offense that's a woke definition of righteous indignation, an excuse to be angry at perceived, at perceived mistreatment, at perceived insult, or perceived malice. That definition is far from how the Scripture would set out the boundaries for righteous indignation. Righteous anger in the Bible does relate to injustice, but it centers on God's Word and on God's character. And it's concerned with the treatment of others more than the treatment of myself. You see, there's actually two types of anger. God's anger and our anger. Huge difference. Usually not the same. We know from Scripture that, quote, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. We also read in Proverbs as well as in James that we should be slow to anger. One of the reasons why we are to be slow to anger is because when we get angry, our emotions become so strong, it's really hard to control. Ever notice that? Fits of anger is also present in that list of uh, works of the flesh, the sinful nature, there in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. Yet we're confronted with the fact that Jesus at times became angry And indignant. What's the difference? A man by the name of Robert Jones, a biblical counseling professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote a a helpful resource book on anger uh, entitled Uprooting Anger Biblical Help for a Common Problem. And in it, he outlines three criteria for determining whether anger is righteous anger or not. First, he says, righteous anger reacts against actual sin. He says, most of our anger comes from our preferences or desires not being met. Isn't that interesting? Very similar to what the atheist uh, said. Most of our anger is all about me. Even within the church, often righteous indignation has to do with personal preferences. Churches have split over the color of chairs or the color of carpet. Music has been a huge topic over which uh, people get righteously indignant, or when a pet ministry has run its course and gets changed, people get angry, but it's not righteous anger because it can't be about preferences. But if we consider the story of Jesus clearing the temple twice, <laughs> we see his righteous anger. In Isaiah chapter fifty-six, verse seven, is clear when God says that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's what his temple was there for. So when Jesus saw that they had made the temple into a den of thieves, their actions then were explicitly against God's purposes for the nations. They were crowding out the Gentiles who were hoping to get a a, a moment to worship as well, and so Jesus responded by driving them out. That's righteous indignation. Secondly, the author says righteous anger focuses on God's concerns and not our own. God's concerns and not our own. Sinful human anger typically responds to one's own name being besmirched. Righteous anger will be concerned about the name of God. Again, if we consider Jesus in the temple, his concern was with how God's character was being defamed. And then thirdly, he says, righteous anger will be expressed in godly ways. Righteous anger will remain self-controlled and will exhibit the other fruit of the Spirit. Why does the Bible share that Jesus crafted a whip? Do you remember that story there? He crafted a whip with which he drove out the money changers. And I think it was to show that his anger was completely under Control. This was not a fit of rage that Jesus had. He wasn't just flying off the handle and picked up whatever happened to be there and, and started whipping. He was strong, stern, and forceful, but he still fully exhibited the fruit of the Spirit. Folks, we must always question our anger. We must always question our anger. Is it truly Righteous? In fact, I would go as far as to say that we should be very suspicious of our anger. Knowing our propensity to craft God in our own image. Do we take that anger captive? We've talked about taking thoughts captive, making them obedient to Christ. Have we, do we take our anger captive? and make it obedient to Christ or do we dwell on it selfishly and decide to take offense because the more we think about it the, the uh, we can find a way to make it sound righteous therefore allow ourselves to indulge in that anger which not only hurts us it hurts our relationships with others it hurts our relationship with God we should be slow to call our anger righteous unless we can clearly attach it to Scripture. Prove in our own hearts that God's glory is our chief concern. And then be careful to express it in a godly action on behalf of others. But when we mess up, and we mess up a lot, I say we, I'm included, God has given us a remedy. It's called forgiveness. It's called forgiveness. Listen again to Paul as he writes to the believers there in Ephesus. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice." Just to be sure we understand this, Paul is saying that this is how, um, this is how, not, how we should not be living. Okay? He's, he's, he's saying this is your old nature. Get rid of all of it, he says. True Christians don't behave like that. But we are described in verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. This is what we will do because we are new creations. This is the new default position of a transformed heart. It's the new normal of a transformed heart, a, a heart that is awakened, not woke, but awakened in the Holy Spirit to be a forgiving person, and we need to make sure that we cultivate that consistently. Why? Why? There are a number of reasons, and let let me share a few of those reasons with you this morning. Number one, we forgive because it's the most godlike thing that we can do. In Matthew 5, Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders, and he says in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You see, to hate was kind of part of the Jewish cultural theology of the time. You could hate your enemy... But love your neighbor. That was legitimate. But I tell you, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why would we do that? Well, verse 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. We want to be known as children of God, right? Then bless people. Forgive people. Even the people who you feel persecute you. And and that assumes they've actually done damage. They've actually done harm to you. God forgives. We're never more like God than when we forgive. The forgiveness of God obviously is laid out all throughout Scripture. He's been doing it for 6,000 years. In the 34th chapter of the book of Exodus, when God introduces himself to Moses, this is how he describes himself. Listen to this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's amazing. This is the Old Testament God being described by the way, the Old Testament God the New Testament God are the same one. God is compassionate and God forgives. We read part of Psalm 103 earlier as we began the service this morning. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are from the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And then it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Again, we're never more like God than when we forgive. Amazing. And we see the great, greatest illustration of that on the cross, where Jesus basically blessed his crucifiers by saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. We don't curse. We don't hate. We don't, um, we, we don't hang on to anger. We forgive and we pronounce blessing on those who we feel have hurt us. When was the last time that we did that? Secondly, we forgive because it avoids guilt. Because not forgiving is sin, right? Right? Listen to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, talking about believers, okay, within the body of Christ, anyone who is angry with a, uh, with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. This is serious stuff. We we risk God's judgment if we remain angry with a brother or sister. Jesus said anyone who is angry, staying angry, is subject to judgment. Why? Because we have not taken that anger captive and made it obedient to Christ by forgiving that person from the heart. It's that serious. There's a third reason why we forgive. And it's this, God... Is more offended than you, and he forgives. In other words, whatever your sin was, or whatever the sin against you was that offended you, it was far more offensive to God because we are his children and he loves us that much. David realized this in Psalm 51, verse 4, when he cried out to God after having sinned with Bathsheba. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David understood that the sin was primarily against God. The collateral damage, which is important as well, was against somebody else. But the primary sin was against God. So if God, who is most offended, forgives, then we who are least offended should forgive as well. Unless, as one commentator says, you want to make yourself a higher court than God, unless you are more holy than God, more righteous than God, or have some other reason to be more demanding than than God to withhold forgiveness. Wow, when you put it that way, (laughs) uh, that's pretty sobering, isn't it? The fourth reason to forgive, and it's in Matthew chapter 6, is that we forgive to be forgiven. Remember these words from what we call the Lord's Prayer, as He's teaching His disciples, and forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven those who sinned against us. God forgives us because we have already forgiven others. Which means that if we haven't forgiven others, then we can't expect forgiveness from God. And Jesus says exactly that in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And Jesus is talking to the disciples here. He's talking to believers he is not saying that your sins aren't covered in the death of Christ in an eternal sense, but in the sense of our sanctification, our holiness, our usefulness, our fellowship. If we have sin in our life, how can we completely be holy and righteous? That's why 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if, you confess, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness that's exactly what Jesus is saying there in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. And he goes on to say in the next verse, if we claim we have not sinned, I've been offended. I have a right to be angry. I'm acting in righteous indignation. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So for holding a grudge of unforgiveness against someone else. That sin is not going to be forgiven by God, and we put ourselves in a position where we can't enjoy the fruit of the Spirit. We can't be instruments of righteousness in God's hands. Forgive so that you can be forgiven. We don't want things going on in our life that restricts God, that, like Jesus was restricted because that's going to render us useless in his service, useless in his church, useless in his kingdom. That actually leads us into the fifth reason that we need to forgive, which we find in Matthew as well. We forgive in order to worship. We forgive in order to worship. In Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, or I would add, if you know um, you have something against your brother and sister, leave your gift there in front of the altar, Jesus said. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. This is often mentioned at the time of communion, when we have Communion Sunday, the first Sunday of the month. To to be able to partake in a worthy manner, we want to make sure that our sins are, are forgiven and that we're purified to partake of, of the cup and the bread uh, in a worthy manner. But a gift at the altar indicates a sacrifice. In Hebrews thirteen fifteen uh, says, "Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name." That's worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Why? This is your true and proper what? Worship. In order to worship God in a worthy manner, our lives have to be right before the Lord. God will not accept impure worship. God speaks very strongly about this in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Listen to this. God's saying, A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. If you priests who show show contempt for my name. But you ask, "How, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. We need to forgive so that we are not bringing a defiled sacrifice to the Lord when we worship. Psalm 66, verse 18 says, If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He's not going to answer my prayers if I am a bitter, sinful person and if I'm not willing to repent and turn from my sin. I can't enter into his presence to worship if I have some kind of conflict going on with someone who is also a brother and sister. Sixth reason. We forgive to avoid discipline. That's a biggie. Good motivation, right? Right? We forgive to avoid discipline. James 2, verse 13 says, Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Lack of forgiveness is a lack of mercy. If we don't want to suffer God's discipline, which is harsh at times, that means we need to be merciful towards others. And that mercy shows up in God's and constantly overlooking perceived offenses and sins, and offering forgiveness, showing mercy. Oftentimes, it's asking God to forgive us for having those attitudes. Seven, we forgive because trials have a perfecting work. James 1, 2-4 says, Consider pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Don't necessarily appreciate that verse, but it's there. Consider pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There's a reason he allows us. And folks, people too can be trials. Amen? Amen? Paul faced severe trials of many kinds. And in 2 Corinthians 12, he says this But he, God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, listen, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships in persecutions, in difficulties. Have you ever delighted in those things? For when I am weak, then I am strong, because it's God who is working in me. And Peter puts it this way, after you have suffered a little while, the Lord will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Spiritual maturity, spiritual perfection requires trials. Number eight, we forgive to avoid irreverence. What do I mean by that? Well, the most irreverent thing a person can do would be to equate themselves with God. Believe me, you don't want to do that. But unfortunately, that's what we do if we cultivate vengeance and revenge and have a spirit of unforgiveness. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's the essence of forgiveness, is it not? Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. That's why I say we need to forgive in order to avoid irreverence. Think about it. How irreverent could, could you possibly be if you tried to usurp the role of God? Let God deal with it. God is the one who will avenge if vengeance is needed. It's not up to us to give payback. Our responsibility is to forgive. And for the ninth and final reason, we come back to Ephesians 4. We forgive because we have been forgiven. We forgive because we have been forgiven. And that's verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Being kind and compassionate to one another translates to forgiving each other. The Greek word for forgive is karizomai, and it literally means to show grace, to show grace. This is how the Greek dictionary defines karizomai, to show one's self gracious, to show one's Yeah, to show oneself gracious, kind, benevolent. To grant forgiveness freely, no strings attached. To give graciously, give freely, bestow bestow forgiveness. Graciously to restore one to another. That's forgiveness. That's karizomai. That's God's forgiveness. And that's what He provided for us, and that's what He offered us, and that's what He gave us. And God says we are to do the same. That then begs the question, how has God forgiven us? Well, that's the whole story of the gospel, isn't it? He forgives us when we don't deserve it. He forgives us when we can't earn it. He forgives us when we could never pay reparations that would satisfy Him. And He forgives us completely and forgets them and removes them as far as the east is from the west. That's how God forgives And that's how we have to forgive each other. The great reality of this truth is found back in Matthew chapter 18, and I close with this, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus, and you'll remember this this story, and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? You see, the Pharisees said, three times is enough. You know, three strikes, you're out. So Peter thought he was being magnanimous, right? Up to seven times. He doubled it and added one. And you remember Jesus' answer, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. 490 times. Boy, I can't wait for 491, right? No, Jesus was saying, forgive endlessly. Never stop forgiving. Because that's what God does. How many times have you sinned over your lifetime? Have you got to 490 yet? I'm so glad God doesn't stop forgiving me. So how can God be just and also justify a sinner? Through the forgiveness by submitting His Son, substituting His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, putting Him on the cross... To bear the divine punishment for all of our sins, for all the sins of all who would ever believe. This is beyond our total comprehension. Listen, God is so forgiving that he went to the extent where he did the most severe damage to his own son. He put the curse of sin on his own son in order to put a blessing on us. His son didn't deserve a curse. And we didn't deserve that blessing. But that's how forgiving God is. And so that's how we should forgive. Forgive because God forgave you. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. And listen to the chorus. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love. I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you. In all I do, I honor you. And one of the best ways that we can honor him is by forgiving freely. Are we honoring him in all we do? Father, this morning, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you have given us the power of your Holy Spirit to quell our anger, to quell our selfishness. Thank you that we can take Jesus in completely so that it would be he that is living and no longer us. And when that takes place in our lives, when our our lives are so totally transformed by, by your Holy Spirit, the anger that has a tendency to pop up will be squashed. And in its place will be love, concern, forgiveness. Father, each of us are different. We each have different personality types. Some, it takes a long time. Just because of the personality, it takes a long time. They're slow to get angry. Others are quicker, perhaps. But Father, we all need to understand that none of that selfish anger is righteous. I pray that you would just transform our hearts and our lives and that, that we would stop. And if we start feeling that old emotion of anger building up, that, that we would take that captive and make it obedient to Christ. Where's that anger coming from? Why, why am I angry? Is it because of my selfish desire? Is it because of me? Because I, I'm upset? Father, we pray that you would then allow us to stop and ask forgiveness and refuse that anger in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will fill us for love with love and compassion and blessing for those that are around us. Father, do a new work in us. Do a new work in, in the body of Christ here and around the world. Uh, Satan loves to get in and destroy churches through this aspect. I pray that we would fight against his, his attempts and that you would be the unifying factor in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.